I'd like to just begin this evening in uh, welcoming the new arrivals. I know you've already had some welcoming from Catherine and Kirsten and uh, and a little bit more from myself here. It's lovely to see new faces and well-known faces equally amongst you new here today. And... uh, We've been engaged already in this journey, about 30 of us for the weekend, and uh, it feels like taking on some, you know, sort of fresh rowers or something onto the boat. (laughs) Something like that. Not that anyone's arms are that tired, I don't think, but uh, something like that. So... uh, I was just reflecting in terms of wanting to speak both to yourselves arriving today and equally to the group of us who have been here for for a couple of days now. And actually the the first word that stood out when I was reflecting was in fact that word welcome, sense of it's well that you've come. It's well in fact that we have all come here. And what what that represents, what that means in terms of something which contributes to, which supports a potential for for well-being and that it evokes or invites or brings a sense of wellness, a sense of welcome. It's well that you've come. And the Buddha was um, described by many different terms and words. And one of them that, at least in some of the earlier English translations, appeared quite often, and it's not so familiar these days, but one of the translations of one of those words was to describe the Buddha as the the welfarer. The welfarer. And it's a kind of a curious word, sort of reflecting on that a little bit. Now, I don't think it was because he was unemployed and living on benefits, and um, you know, they called him the welfarer. Um, <laughs> nor, I imagine, was it anything to do with large holes in the ground for getting water out of. But the sense that it evokes for me, the welfarer, a sense of a journeying, of a moving, of a travelling, sort of, it's a bit like a wayfarer, isn't it? That's the word it evokes most closely, but the welfarer, like travelling in the service of, or in the expression of, or in the fulfilment of, or in the offering of wellness. That, that's what, it, I don't know what it does for you, but that's what it evokes for me, the welfarer. Some, some sense of this, this being moving in and through their life in a way that expresses wellness, contributes to wellness, offers a certain wellness. And this is something that's very much at the heart of what we've been doing, what we are doing. That sense of journeying, engaging in our journey and our life consciously. And with a intention and orientation towards well-being, towards what that might mean for us. And we've used a, a chant in the, in the retreat yesterday and we'll return to it again today. I've just committed myself, I realise, and normally we're not committing ourselves to such things in advance, but I think I just did, so yes, we will do it, for better or for worse. Um, but the the phrase, or one of the the core phrases in this chant is, "May I abide 
in well-being. May everyone abide in well-being. And there's something of a resonance I feel when I hear those words. And it's something that I've chanted many times. So perhaps that's part of where the resonance comes from. But I think the words in themselves, even without the, the history, express something that we recognize. And this this urge that we have, this communal element that unites all of us together, without which we wouldn't be here in our arriving today or in our continuing on. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be doing this without something in us that we understand, that we experience, that we feel moving in the very depths of our being and that we can articulate or we can express in the terms of that that orientation, that movement towards well-being. And this is this is something both natural and essential to what it means to be human, to be alive, in fact, at all. Sorry, I'm just seeing more people I want to smile at. <laughs> Which is lovely, actually, for me, to have that sense amongst you. Ah. <sighs> And it's not that there are others who I don't want to smile at. (laughs) Hmm. So this human urge or orientation, this core sort of movement within us, is a very interesting one to me and I think to maybe to all of us. But certainly in the context of spiritual teaching and practice, one thing one can see or recognize is that while we have this movement towards well-being, towards happiness, towards peace or freedom, we don't necessarily know how to get there, what it is that will most directly or fully contribute to that well-being. It's something that we have learned some about along the way in our journeys, our lives, of course. And some of what we've learned about that, about really what contributes to a genuine sense of well-being, is what has brought us here, or what keeps us here, what brings us back into the room, you know, through the day. And again, this evening. To not necessarily know how it is we come to the discovery, to the fulfilment of that which we most long for. You know, it's like, just a moment, this is not how it's supposed to be set up, is it? It's like I sometimes have the image or the sense of it's as if we've been given this remarkable and precious gift. And it's this amazing thing, but we can tell it can and should and probably will be able to do all these incredible things, but somehow we can't find the instruction book or it's in a foreign language that we can't read. So we know it's going to do all this stuff, but so we're kind of sort of banging around a bit with it, trying to work out how does this thing really work? What really makes a difference in my life? And we learn the lessons in a perhaps sometimes slow and certainly sometimes painful way. 
by trial and error. That's the way pretty much everything happens. We all learn. Only, essentially, we learn by going beyond what we know. And when we go beyond what we know, we mess up because we don't know what to do out there. The whole movement of, of life to fulfill what is possible for ourselves as human beings, what is possible for the species as a human animal and as a very particular and remarkable expression of life, there's a certain hit and miss element about it. And of course, one of the ways we talk about that or we describe that as as suffering, as the, oh, that part of life that's hard to bear, that we all know equally as we know that longing and wish for its end. And one of the things that I really want to just touch on a bit more this evening is the the way in which it's so important for us to, to trust whatever in us that has that sense of looking, of being drawn to explore, to see, to understand, that it's not fooling us, to trust that it's not something that's misleading us, that there is the possibility of the fulfillment of that, which is at the very heart of our being, at the very core of what it is that makes us what it is that we are. When I first encountered the Dharma teachings, and if for some of you that language, when I say Dharma teachings, Dharma is a word that the Buddha used and is used in uh, in the language of Sanskrit and Pali and uh, other some other ancient languages, I think, also. But it essentially refers to both truth in itself and the way things are and the teachings that point to that. So both truth and that which points to it, we could say, is the Dharma. And so we talk about Dharma teachings as being teachings about the way things are and equally as being the teachings of the Buddha who was a a human being who realized profoundly the way things are and spoke about them, taught about them, shared them. And so when I first encountered these teachings, I... I was really astounded, first of all, by the fact that I didn't understand at all what was going on when I was practicing and what was being pointed to. I couldn't get it with my head at all. It didn't make sense to me. I was really confused. But something in me had this very strong sense of yes. It was just simply that. It was yes. And it was like, ah. I don't know what it was. Well, I sort of do now. But then I didn't know what it was in me that just went, ah. But something very central relaxed and said yes. Though it didn't yet quite know fully to what it was saying yes. And that was probably a good thing. And I, I was travelling in Asia at the time and I started looking for some books to, to read a bit more about this, this practice, the insight and loving kindness meditation that I'd encountered on a retreat in India. And one of the first books, in fact... It may have been, I can't remember, there were two books. This was either the first or the second book I found. and uh, It was um, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by Nyanaponika Tara. Who is, Tara means elder. He is a, a German scholar, monk and practitioner who lived in Sri Lanka and died um, 
in the latter part of the last century, I guess. And um, in his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which is a classic book on the practice of insight meditation, there was a line in it that just jumped out and spoke to me again in this. And, and it really spoke to the whole you know, the whole thing in a few words, which I've taken quite a lot more to speak about. That what it said was, what he said was, and actually before I say that, you know, it's like what we experience in our heart and our mind and our body, the innerness of our life is what is so important to us so much of the time. You know, there's something about the life that pulses and flows and shows itself within us that is miraculous and precious and potent and mysterious and at times confusing and at times distressing and difficult. And I think we're here. I imagine we're here because it's something we're really interested in. And perhaps and hopefully because we're starting to understand, already deepening our understanding that it's this that makes the difference. More than manipulating things in the outer world. It's actually understanding this makes the difference. And it does make a difference. Not just to us, but to the world as well. We'll probably speak more about that later. But just for now, the words in the book that I I wanted to quote and I'm remembering them, so it may not be a precise quote that uh, he wrote, Nyanaponika. He said, This heart-mind is bound all over. This heart-mind is bound all over. And yet, it can know freedom here and now. Here and now, there is a, a potentiality for a knowing that releases the bondage, the boundness of the heart and mind, that allows or reveals the nature of what it is that feels to be at the very core of our being as something unbound and boundless. Something unbound and boundless. And yet, Our experience is often of a sense of being bound or of bondage, of being entangled in and with our experience and our world. And not necessarily understanding how these two arise together. The way we experience our inner and how we see it and understand it. And the way we experience what we call the world, what we call outer, and how we experience understand it, how we view it, these two arise together. They're not actually separate from each other. If we endeavour to deal with the world without attending to what this experience and inner life is, it doesn't seem to work. And if we attempt to attend just to what's in here without also including the world, we equally somehow don't quite find the fulfilment we, we seek. And so, <clears throat> Dharma practice, Dharma teachings, and what we are engaging in here, and what we will be engaging in together, it comes out of a sense of 
a recognizing of our human capacity to develop, to grow. That what we are is not what is not fixed by what we have imagined or believed ourselves to be. What we are is not limited to what we have conceived or what we have been told by someone else we must be or cannot be. And so this, this path and practice is one in which we can grow and deepen and develop in a quality of calm, of serenity, of tranquility that can actually find peace in the midst of this world just as it is. In a quality of, of kindness, of friendliness, of openness that can embrace the totality of our life, our experience and our world without demanding it to, to be other than as it is. And, and a deepening of our understanding at the faculty of wisdom that can see truly and deeply into the very nature of what it is that we call this being alive. That in the seeing, in the penetrating in this way, there is a freedom in life revealed as its very nature, not something we need to construct or maintain, but that discovered in the very heart of it. There is a freedom that is unbound. And so, in a way, this time we have is a it's a real gift and blessing that we've given to ourselves that each of us have offered and allowed ourselves to receive to concern ourselves with what is really the most important things with what really stands out for us as this is what I'm concerned with in my life. So much of the busyness and pressures that seem to consume us in, in worldly activity and sometimes seem to consume us while we're on retreat equally about having to somehow perform or succeed or just survive what's going on. And, you know, whether it's at work or whether it's on the cushion, we can notice that going on for us, trying to get it right, trying to make sure we don't get overwhelmed, trying to come through with what we think should be happening, all of that. But... One of the things that allows us to cut through that, to start to really feel and sensitize ourselves to the, to the central issues, to what really is at the core of it, is to just bring to mind and to reflect a little on the fact that we are not here forever. To just let this in. This is something that really touches the twin threads or the sort of the dual currents of, of cultivating loving kindness and insight when we turn towards the fact that we're not here forever. It informs our motivation for both of these, these forms of practice. 
if we contemplate this, if we think a little about this, and you know, it's kind of interesting, Guy House is where it is, to some extent, because in our tradition we have some degree of enthusiasm for contemplating the fact that we're not here forever. It's not such a popular activity in mainstream culture. And uh, when we were at the old building in Danbury that was rather small, could squeeze 35 people in if 10 of them were up an attic, up a ladder, and, uh, and we didn't check too much on the health and safety regulations. So sort of a, sort of a bit of a hippie culture that seemed okay at that time. Um, but over the years outgrowing it and wanting to move, and this place remarkably came on the market. And there were three people, three groups involved or interested in trying to buy it. One was going to, wanted to um, site a retirement home here. The other wanted to run a family holiday camp here. And then there was Guy House, us, wanting to have a retreat centre. And the nuns of the, um, the order, it had been a, um, a hospice here for, the, for a missionary order as well as a retreat centre, they had been, a number of them, buried in the, in the grounds, in the graveyard, and a number of them, of whom there were just a small number still left, wished to have the opportunity to be buried there also. And so part of the deal was that you know, whoever bought this would need to look after the graveyard. And, of course, in an old people's home, it's not necessarily what they wanted because that's something that you often in that context don't think about or encourage reflecting on too much. And likewise, for a family holiday p- park, having a graveyard in the middle of it, just a moment. So I think the other bidders were less enthusiastic about that aspect than we were. And it's really fortunate because our bid was not the highest, but we were given this place, sold it in fact, not actually given, but uh, but in a sense there was a gifting and something of that respect for for what it means to include a contemplation and a reflection on death, on the fact that we're not here forever, as part of how we're here at least for now. And when we when we reflect on this, when we, we look at this, we see that it's something quite powerful for us to just bear in mind that when we know things are not forever, we actually sense and feel their preciousness. We've talked in that and, and we will continue to speak about the practice of loving-kindness meditation and how appreciation supports that. And one of the things that really helps us open our heart to a sense of appreciation and a sense of kindliness and care that comes with that is seeing that things are not forever. When we see that, it's like, oh yeah. We can start to feel the precious, the the beautiful flowers that yesterday in the, I think it was in the talk in the evening or at some point, um, I think Catherine was pointing out the, the beautiful flowers and they're still beautiful, remarkable. But today, this afternoon, coming in and seeing the poppy had dropped its petals and some of its... Bits are disappearing, and it's still beautiful. But you can see that in the very beauty of the flowers, in their preciousness and something we appreciate about them, it's equally because they're not going to be here forever. And we see the evanescence and the transience of their aliveness and their flowering, so to speak.
in the cultivation of caring, of love, of cherishing beings, knowing they're not forever, is one of the greatest supports for this. And I don't know if any of you heard about this, but just a few days ago, or maybe it was a week now, the last remaining member of a species who for 40 years had been the last remaining member of his particular species of turtle on the Galapagos Island, known as Lonely George, I think his name was, because he was on his own for 40 years. He died. And it was something quite... like, I mean, it can be sad when a being dies. And that particular poignancy of not just that being, but that whole species coming to an end coming to an end and so that for not just myself I think but an outpouring of of care of appreciation of of actually love for this turtle on the internet that I saw you know and it wasn't that he was particularly good looking or anything (laughs) but we just sort of feel that oh so coming into contact with that knowing and that understanding that recognizing that reflection it does something for our hearts. It opens. It opens us. It opens us up in so many ways. And equally we see that that things in and of themselves, because they're moving and changing, including ourselves, our experience, and that it's not forever. It brings, it invites or evokes, for me, and I think perhaps and... For most people at times, though not always, a sense of a sort of a curiosity, a fascination. Sometimes it's a little bit of a sort of anxiety generating thing, but but it touches us, you know, and to the extent that, you know, we're really enthusiastic about this here at Guy House, you know, there's a there's a skeleton in the walking room which perhaps you're aware of and you know one can, if one wishes, spend a little time walking and contemplating that this being once was like me and now like this. And, you know, one day this being is going to be like that. Really, it happens to us all. Hmm? And there's a sense of, huh, so, so what do I want to do with this life? What do I want to do with this life? There's a poem by Mary Oliver I'd like to read. She writes, When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps his purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, 
tending as all music does, towards silence. And each body a line of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. And I find I really, even having read and even recited it numerous times, I find something in the poem really touches me. The sense of that curiosity, that real feeling that the the author evokes of, you know, really so... Because it's really not just, you know, what will death be like, but what will tomorrow be like? What will the next moment be like if we if we bring it into where we are? That sense of real curiosity for life. Because it is uncertain. The sense of the real preciousness of it. I mean, to read again those lines, it's just... Uh, I hope you don't mind. I enjoy them. Um, you know, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. I consider eternity another possibility. That sense of just really being open. What is all this? What is all this? And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. The sense of preciousness is really a foundation for the opening of our hearts. And the sense of curiosity is really the the key that unlocks the potential of our capacity for discovery, for exploration, investigation and wisdom. And really, therefore, these qualities that we seek at the very heart of it all to deepen, to develop, are responses to that question of what is it that's most important for us, for you, for me, for this world? What is it that's most important? And we could answer that question perhaps in different ways, but one way that can resonate, certainly resonates for me, is you know, what's important And these are the questions we might ask as we come to the end of our lives, if we are so fortunate as to know that that's where we're about to be going. But we might equally ask them now, knowing that one day we'll be there. You know, what's important is to have loved well and to ask ourselves, you know, can I and have I loved well? And to equally to know what is most true, to understand the truth of life. This is really what we're here for. And I don't just mean on this retreat. This is what we're here for. This is actually the fulfillment 
of what it is in our hearts naturally draws us to engage, to explore, to open, to encounter the challenges and the, at times, tribulations or confusions, to explore what it may times seem like distractions or dead ends, and yet all of which is an expression of a movement of life, a movement of what it is that is alive, that is interested in love, that is interested in truth, that is interested in what comes when we make those two things most important, when we trust in those two things. Love and truth. And, you know, they sometimes get used a little bit too much as words. They can lose their potency for us. But they are pointing to, speaking to something that does not lose its potency, its significance, its power for us. So how are you doing just now? I'm wondering if you're weary or uncomfortable needing to move or rest because I wanted to tell a story or read a story but I don't have to. So tell me, has anyone kind of just about had enough tonight? It's okay. Or needing to rest or wanting to finish in the next two or three minutes because we can do that. I didn't tell you how long the story was yet, did I? (laughs) Feel free if you need to move or adjust a little bit. If you want to bring some ease to your body, you're very welcome to. It's a story that perhaps some of you will know. But in this context, just feels... I, I was reflecting and I thought, oh, yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to share the story. I'm not sure whether I'll be able to read it. Uh, every, I think I can still see it. The story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once it was a great order, but as a result of many years of anti-monastic persecution and then the rise of secularism, all of its branch houses were lost and it became decimated to the extent that there were just five monks living in the old, decaying mother house. The abbot and four others, all over 70 in age. Clearly it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. And they would sometimes know that the rabbi had come to visit. And so when when thinking about and reflecting on what was happening, the abbot, deeply distressed, deeply distressed by the imminent loss of his order in the community that had been his, the large part of his life, he thought, maybe I could go and ask the rabbi. Maybe she would have some advice for me. And the rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut, at her hut, sorry. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, she exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people. It's the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. 
So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. Then they read parts of the holy scriptures and spoke quietly of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me? No piece of advice you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I am sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give you. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, Well, what did he say? What did she say? What did the rabbi say? She couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing she did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic about the Messiah. She said that the Messiah was one of us. I don't know what she meant. And in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered if there was possibly any significance in the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us. Could the rabbi possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? Could she have meant one of us? Which one in that case? Which one? Do you suppose she meant the abbot? Of course she must have meant the abbot. Father Abbot has been our leader for more than a generation. But on the other hand, she might have meant Brother Thomas because Brother Thomas, we all know, is a, a man of light and such a holy being, maybe the rabbi meant Brother Thomas. But certainly she didn't mean Brother Elred. Brother Elred is so grumpy and irritable. He's really annoying. But actually, when you think about it, actually, mostly Brother Elred is right. Mostly he's right. Maybe the, maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred. And certainly not Brother Peter. Brother Peter is so passive. He's just like... You know, it's just almost like he's not there. But then somehow he turns up just when you need him. Maybe the rabbi meant Brother Peter. But surely she didn't mean me, did she? She couldn't have meant me. I mean, that's. I'm just an ordinary person. How could I be that? I couldn't be that much for you, could I? And as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect, on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And on the off-off chance that they themselves might be the Messiah, they started to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. And because the forest in which it was situated was rather beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery. It was sort of like a historic sort of old building. And they would have a picnic on its lawn or wander along the paths. And every now and then they went into the broken down old chapel to meditate. And as they did, without even being aware or conscious of it, they started to notice this aura, this environment of extraordinary respect that just started to fill and permeate the grounds and the atmosphere of the monastery. And so it was something kind of attractive and strangely compelling. They didn't even know why, but they started to come more often. 
and bring their friends. And their friends brought their friends. And they came to, to picnic, to play, to pray. And it so happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery became interested in what the monks were doing, started to meet and speak with them and share their spiritual aspirations and their love of, of things that are deep and subtle. And after a while, one of them asked if he could join them, and another, and another. And within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. And so we're here together. And we'll be practicing together for this coming week, seven days. In this time, can we treat ourselves with a real, a genuine respect for what is possible for us? For it may be that we are the Messiah. <laughs> it may be you, yeah. It may be you. It may be that we are the Buddha to be. The flower, the lotus flower of awakening that is there as a seed potential in all of our hearts doesn't announce beforehand its flowering to let us know it's happening tomorrow. It simply happens when it happens, just as flowers open when they open. And so we hear together in a spirit of possibility and profound respect for life, for each other and ourselves, really embarking or continuing in this journey of awakening of our hearts, our minds and our lives, an awakening of this world and life itself. And the Buddha spoke of this as something for each and all of us as possible, as our potential. The sure heart's release, the unshakable deliverance of mind, the liberation of a human being, the liberation of all beings. For this we practice. For this we live. And so, let's just sit together for a few moments in an expression of respect for this potentiality that we all share. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.